Happy New Year, and welcome back to the 14th season of The Candid Frame. It's amazing that I've been doing this for almost 14 years, but I'm so glad that I am, because despite all the hundreds of photographers I've already interviewed, there are so many more that I'm looking forward to speaking to and sharing with you. But for the first episode of 2020, I thought I'd do something a little different. So instead of a photographer, I invited my friend, Stephen Dimmick, who is an exceptionally talented makeup artist, who's worked with some of the world's top designers and fashion photographers, and whose work has graced the cover of Time Magazine and Italian Vogue. At first, I thought it would provide a good alternative perspective from the fashion photographers we've interviewed in the past. But what I got was also an amazing story of raising oneself up from nothing, crashing back down, and then slowly building oneself up again. It's a great story that involves talent, passion, determination, ego, and proves that we all have second chances. The first job was uh, a friend of mine, Marla, who I'd met. She worked at the Mac Pro Store. That's Mac Cosmetics. That's not Mac the Computer. We had a similar aesthetic. I assisted one of her makeup idols who had died. He did a lot of David Bowie stuff in the 70s and a lot of iconic images and I got to assist him when he moved back to Australia and so her and I connected on that so 10 years later she disappeared from Mac and I don't know where she ended I didn't know where she was and I got a phone call out of the blue and she said would you like to come and do looks for Dior Couture in Paris and I'm like yeah I do that was with Pat McGrath the most iconic makeup artist to date she said Great. There's a ticket at the airport. I'll see you tomorrow morning in Paris. (laughs) You'll learn more about Stephen, including how a communication misstep led him to lose everything as a result of a phone call from the editor and chief of Vogue magazine and a winner. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, Stephen, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure to have you. Ah, it's a pleasure to be here. You're my first guest for the year. Ah. So I'm I'm really excited to to have a chance to talk with you. And as you may or may not know, most of the interviews that I conduct on the show are are with photographers. Yes. But I've always wanted to interview someone who would would be part of a photographic crew, especially in the world of fashion. Mm -hmm. Because I thought that considering that a lot of people who listen to this show are probably interested or working in that area, I thought it would be really interesting to have a conversation with someone who worked in some other facet. Mm. And when I found out about your career and what you've done, I said, oh, I got the perfect person. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really pleased and excited to have you uh, to have you on the show and to get to talk. Yeah, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Yeah. And your life and your career is fascinating. Uh, <laughs> it really is. When I see the people that you work with and I've seen your work, uh, it is really phenomenal. You know, it, in terms of where I start, it's really hard. It's hard to, and I, I, and I kind of sometimes I'm reluctant to start from the very beginning. <laughs> but that may be well the place where that we need to start with because I was born on September twenty first, nineteen sixty eight, in back. Brisbane, Australia. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're from Australia. But from what I was reading, you were doing hair. Yes, and that's you were doing that, and then at some point you just got sick and tired of doing that. I was doing old lady perms and uh, sets and I just was going stupid. And I was, you know, I was a young kid and I was, you know, I used to shave my eyebrows off and wear lots of made 80s makeup and pink hair, green hair, all that kind of stuff. And I said to my boss, I was like, surely I I will kill myself if I have to do another old lady perm. And she said, (laughs) and I, you know, I had a full face of makeup on and she said, what could you do for the rest of your life and never get paid for? And I went, oh, makeup. And she said, okay, then we just need to figure out how to make money from that, how to make a living from that. I was like, wow. That is a gift. A huge gift. And how did you guys figure that out? How did you guys figure out how to- She actually, she pulled me out of beauty school for for hair and she just said, I I will still pay you. You'll still go up in pay and all you will do is makeup in the salon. I was like, "Uh, uh, 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 uh," you know, it was uh, was one of those kinds of what? Why, why, why do you think she did that? Has she, has she ever told you? Because she probably had a lot of people that came to her shop. And for her to choose to do that for you, she must have seen something in you that, that made her willing to 
you know, she she knew, she understood as a hairdresser, you need to be passionate. It's it's like anything that involves creativity. You have to be passionate about it. If you're not a passionate photographer, don't do it. Yeah. You know, if you're not a passionate hairdresser, don't do it. If you're not a passionate musician, don't do it. If you're not passionate about it, don't do it. So for her to separate it out from this is your job to what do you love to do, mm-hmm. you know, just made it clear, oh, oh, I can do that. I could actually make a living out of doing makeup. And she said, she was, yes, of course you can. You know, she said, I don't know where or how, but of course you can. You know, so I just started doing, my first was a bride, you know, and it was, you know, I'm pretty sure she's looking back on the pictures with a little bit of fear because the, the, (laughs) you know, the blush was pink and the eyes were green and yellow and black and her lips were red. I mean, it was- It was the 80s. It was the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) She did have leg of mutton sleeves, so I think that- (laughs) Oh, God. You know, and uh, so, and it just grew from there. And I met a photographer and then, you know, I just, yeah, I didn't realize I could actually do it for the magazines that I would scour over and just oogle, you know, the faces, you know, the faces of the models, you know, because I just loved, I loved the contour, I loved the color, I loved, I just loved what they were doing. And I didn't connect it that it was a job until I met my first photographer. Wow. So when you looked at those magazines, you just mentioned some of the things that you were seeing visually. Mm. Tell me a little more about what you were seeing on the pages of those magazines that elicited such, you know, such excitement in you. It was fantasy. It was not touchable. It wasn't real. It was um, it was aspirational. It was an escape from the realities of life. You know, it was mm. a lot like, you know, when I watched old films of the 30s and 40s, it was an escape. You know, there was a perfectionism about it that was just... I could, I could, I could run away from the crap of my life. You know, I didn't. My early life wasn't a lot of fun, so mm-hmm. that escape and that fantasy was just, it was just magical to me, and I just wanted to be part of that. How much of it was just that it was a creative outlet? I didn't understand it as a creative outlet in the beginning. I just understood it as something that was f- fun to do and fun to create. Fun to um, just do something that was a fantasy, Mm -mm. you know? I didn't understand it as a creative outlet. And I think that probably, and you can tell me, but I would think that part of the pleasure is transforming someone else and seeing their reaction when you're done. Good and bad. Good and bad? Yeah. Okay, tell me about both. That's the thing. A lot of times if I'm, I've worked with a lot of models, so when you're working with a model, you know, they understand that their job is to bring to life the uh, the makeup, the hair, uh, the fashion with the photographer and the lighting. They get to bring that character to life. It's mm-hmm. not like an actor. It's very different because it's still, there's no dialogue, but they still get to create this visual image. And, and they are the star of the image, even though everyone, that everyone is the star. Okay. They're the ones that our people understand is the star. They don't understand why they're the star. They don't understand that it's everything that goes around it that makes them the star. So when I worked with um, real, <laughs> quote unquote, real women, that doesn't sound very nice to say, but when I worked with non-model women, mm-hmm. they had this idea that you could make them look like somebody else. Oh, okay. And you can't. Although they, you know, you'd finish and they would look in the mirror and they go, it doesn't look like me. And so they wouldn't be happy that it didn't look like them. Okay. But I'm like, well, that's what you look like with makeup. So they couldn't connect that that's what they would look like with makeup. So some women were not happy with the result. So how did you learn how to sort of respond to that when you knew that sometimes that would be the the, the outcome? I, I would warn them. Oh. I would warn them. I'd say, you know. You know, it's, it won't be uncommon. It's not uncommon if you get the response that I don't look like me, and that you don't know what to do with that. Mm. And they're like, "Oh no, it'll be." You know, and they they still think that they're going to be happy. But I'd say eighty percent are happy. But you know, that twenty percent is just like they they don't know how to see themselves a in someone else's vision mm-hmm. because it is someone else's vision on them. Even if they say, "I want a smoky eye and a red lip." I'm doing what I understand as a smoky eye and a red lip. It's like when working with a photographer. Yeah. They may say natural. Some people think natural means 
like raw skin with just a little bit of moisturizer and some lip balm. Some some photographers think natural means they want a, a soft a soft taupe on the eye. They want some they want a mascara. They want a, a nude lipstick. They want some blush. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge big swath of what natural means. So if you were going when you had an opportunity to work with a new photographer mm -hmm. and you were hired, how would you sort of get a sense in terms of what their sort of expectations were in terms of makeup. Because of, you would, of course, talk to them, but did you <laughs> look at their work oh. in order to sort of try to get a gist of what, what they were about? 100%. 100%. I would absolutely check out their work. And for order, in order for me to be on set with them, they'd already checked out my work as right. well. So there was already a... Um, a relationship going on, a correlation between the two of you that understood. I remember I did my first job for Italian Vogue and I'd wanted to work with this photographer by the name of Greg Lotus. And he worked with this makeup artist called Kabuki and Kabuki's stuff is astonishingly bizarre. Mm -hmm. He's he's tamed down a lot to, uh, because, it, you know, to make money you have to tame down. But in order to get his name, his stuff was really out there. And I called my agent the night before the job and I was just in tears and I just was like, Malena, I don't do what Kabuki does. And she said, well, isn't that a relief that they don't want what mm -hmm. Kabuki does? They want what you do. That's why you're there. And it was like, oh, 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 yeah. oh, it's because of what I do, not because of what he, the person he works with had worked with for several years beforehand does. But as an artist that looks up to other as a makeup artist that looks up to another makeup artist, I didn't fully understand that until I was in this situation of having to understand that I'm there because of what I do, that I was the aspiration, I was the inspiration for that photographer and the fashion editor to say, let's bring Stephen in. So what led you to come to the States? Um, my mother... My, both my parents, my dad passed away a long time ago. My mother passed away in 96. And then Shirley, the boss who, who said, uh, what could you do for the rest of your life and never get paid for? After my mother died, there was, there was tumultuous stuff around that. And Shirley always knew when to hug me and she knew when to say, come on. And it was literally two weeks after my mum died and I was bemoaning the poor me's about, you know, what mm -hmm. my mother had done. <laughs> <laughs> and and Shirley just said, you know what? If you really want to extract any kind of revenge on on your family for wrongdoings, make it your success. And she said, all you've ever said to me is, I want to live in New York City. And she said, so whatever you get out of this, move, go, go to New York. And so that's what I did when the estate was settled. I just I bought two tickets home to New York. I was in a relationship I'd been in a relationship for eight years and I came home and handed him a ticket and said come because you want to come not because I'm going but you know I've always wanted to go and two weeks later we were both on a plane to New York and he still lives there uh, in New York <laughs> <laughs> but, but I love stories like that because I think so many people play it safe and mm -hmm. they don't take a risk because they'll say, well, I don't have know anyone. I don't have that much money. How will I do this? And they'll just sort of settle. Mm -hmm. Like you could have settled for just working as a, as a hairdresser. Mm -hmm. What do you think made you ready? Because to have someone encourage you is, is one thing, but there has to be something like deep in your belly that makes you just go, F it. I'm just doing it. Do you know what, um, what that was? Fear of mediocrity. Mm. Definitely an F you to, you know, growing up as a kid in the 70s and 80s and being an, an effeminate kid in the 70s and 80s. And my dad played football, you know, for the state of Queensland. And, and so, you know, I, I grew up around that mm. footballing and it was an Air Force town. It was a coal mining town. <laughs> so, you know, mm. that rebellious streak, you know, it was just the rebellious streak that I was just like, you know, it, it turned from a fuck you into a, oh, I'm actually, I, I actually have something of value. I actually have something creative that I can actually give, mm -hmm. you know. So it turns in a, turns from a, what about me to, if you want what I have, here it is. Okay. You know? So when you got to New York, which is probably the most competitive town, probably outside <laughs> of Paris, in order to do this. So... How do you, how do you manage it? Because you're you're on a, I guess on a on a some sort of visa. Yeah, uh, it was a it I 
Australians can have a visa waiver for three months. So three months, okay. So I basically had three months to either see if I could find somebody to <laughs> um, sponsor me into the country, mm-hmm. or I would have to leave. I could come back, but you know that's just always risky to do. It's, you know, so um, and you know I feel like I had really big balls back then. You know, it was just like I don't care. I got nothing to lose, and I started at the top. I I. I called Vogue magazine and worked my way down. And my break came from an editor at Marie Claire magazine was leaving. Another editor was getting married and the bookings editor at Vogue was moving on to a different job. And so they were having a, all the editors were having a party, like a a night out. And she called me and she said, are you available on this date? And I said, yes. She called me the day before and she said, listen, we've gone to a smaller agency. We're going to use their people. So we're good to go. And I was just like, don't pay me. Just let me come. I'll do, I don't care. I'll just, I'll just let me come. I want to do makeup. I want to do makeup. And she went, are you sure? And I went, yeah, absolutely. So I showed up. I only did two people's makeup. I did the um, fashion director of Vanity Fair, mm-hmm. <laughs> Elizabeth Saltzman, and um, Preston Davis, who was the bookings editor at Vogue, who was moving on. And I did uh, Elizabeth's makeup first and she looked in the mirror and she went, oh my God, your makeup is incredible. Who's your agent? And I said, I don't have one. And she said, who, who, who would you pick if you could pick an agent? And I went, Garen. He was the biggest hairdresser at the time. And I went, Garen. And he had an agency. And she went, you call John at Garen and tell him if he doesn't take you on that he's crazy. And then she called, she said, Preston, you need him to do your makeup. So Preston came over and I did her makeup and she looked in the mirror and she said, I've had the world's best work on me and I haven't felt this beautiful. Wow. She said, who's your agent? (laughs) And I just said, I don't have one, but I'd like to be with Garen. And she said the same, she basically said the same thing. So I left that day and I called John and said, hi, John, it's Stephen Dimmick here. You know, I met you a couple of weeks ago and I just said, I just worked with Elizabeth Saltzman and Preston Davis. And they both said, you're nuts if you don't take me on. (laughs) And he called me back in like 10 minutes and he said, did you just say Preston Davis and Elizabeth Saltzman? And I said, yeah. And he said, give me a minute. He got off the phone. He called me back in like five minutes. He said, I just talked to Garen. And with a recommendation like that, welcome. <laughs> wow. And how much time did you have left on your visa? <laughs> about three weeks. Oh, my God. So I had to, you know, I really had to furiously, about, no, about four weeks, I had to furiously work together and, and gather letters from all my clients in Australia. Yeah. You know, I got a letter from Preston. I got a letter from Elizabeth. You know, so I had these really great letterheads from people who, said that I, I was of an international standard. And what did your portfolio look like? My portfolio was my portfolio was good, but it was it was an Australian portfolio and that's yeah. not unusual to get in on that at all. Right. I had enough tear sheets with my name on it, which you needed, I think was it fifteen or thirty tear sheets with your name on it. Mm-hmm. I had that. And then I had a, an international international letters as well from yeah. Australia through to America uh, that I was uh, definitely irreplaceable in the field of makeup artistry. And that's, that's such a great story. And I think it's a real testament to that idea because there's, there, I think, two schools of thought. There may be more, but to my mind, it seems like two. There, there are some people that go out and they just, they, they just do the work, mm-hmm. you know, and then there are other people who will do the work, but they won't really put themselves out there because they don't think they're quote-unquote ready yet. Yes. And sometimes it's like what you think is ready is probably some unreasonable expectation bar that you're setting for yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's just about being good enough and putting in the work because there's always more that you're going to have to learn anyway. Absolutely. So you might as well learn by doing it and being Absolutely. thrown in the midst. And I think part of what terrifies people is that they fear making mistakes. As if one mistake could ruin their entire career. Yep. And I know you got a good story about... <laughs> About a big mistake that you made, which involves Anna Winter. I need to hear this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was a big one. Um, I had like my first three bookings with this agent after I'd been approved and I I was Mm -hmm. back in the country. You you had to to leave the country. You had to get it in your passport, all that kind of stuff. Uh, My first three jobs back in uh, New York were with uh, American Vogue. And I got a little bit of an ego about me. I sh- <laughs> the 80s and 90s were really good for ego. If you had an ego, that was a good thing. But 
by the time the late 90s, it was, it was a changing industry and, and, you know, ego didn't really have a place anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was on this job for Vogue and the producer came in and, and said, you know, do you have everything you need? And I said, I, I'd love a stool. And she went, uh, let me get on that. So she came back a little while later. Kate Betts was Anna Wintour's right-hand woman. She was the editor on this one. She was there and the producer came back and she said, I'm having trouble locating a stool. Is it okay if we start you off with a chair? And, you know, I thought I was being funny. I thought it was I thought it was just, you know, me being sassy Stephen, mm-hmm. sassy Australian Stephen. I went, I went, girl, I'm not breaking my back for anyone. And I laughed. And, you know, the job happened, the job came and went. I called my agent that afternoon. I went, hi, John, how's everything going? And he went, he said, oh, I'm afraid I've got some bad news. And I'm like, uh, what? I, did I lose a job or something? And he said, um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to let you go. And it, my heart just hit the gutter. Mm. You know, my sh- I, I just, everything crumbled. And I was like, what do you mean? I don't know. What do you mean? And he said, oh, I'm afraid I just can't break my back for anyone. And it <gasps> still didn't register because I thought I was being funny. Mm. And I went, what? What do you mean? And he said, apparently you said to the producer this morning that you don't break your back for anyone. So there was no context to it. All the producer, you know, all that Kate heard was, I don't break my back for anyone. Mm -hmm. And he said, and if you're going to break your back for anyone, it's going to be Vogue. And I said, of course, of course. And he said, so I'd been speaking to Kate this morning and then this afternoon I was speaking with Anna and she said, if you don't remove that insolent child, I will remove my holds from all of your people. That is included Garen and Garen had done every Vogue cover with Stephen Meisel for a good decade, if Mm. not longer. So that was it. That was, that was, you know, that was that one of those, uh, one of those ego crushing moments. Um, And it wasn't until, you know, years later that I realized my ego needed crushing. You know, I think that, uh, I think that some people get away with it. Some people don't. You know, I don't know what was going on in Kate's day that day. I don't know what, you know, what she was dealing with. You know, could she have heard that at a different day? I mean, it doesn't really matter, but, you know, things go on in people's lives and you don't know what it is. I did work with Kate 10 or 10 or 11 years later on on a cover for Time magazine. She didn't even remember me. Yeah. Thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you recover from that? Because that is soul crushing. Uh, oh. So how, how did you manage to, you know, pick yourself up and press on and still end up making a career for yourself and in, in, in the area that you really wanted to after, after something like that? I didn't for a long time. You know, when somebody like Anna went to a you know, gets you removed from your agent Mm -hmm. and being the most powerful woman in the industry, it's just like, I have just screwed everything. What is the point? What is the point? What is the point? And I went through a two-year period and pretty much uh, my life, everything in my life just went south. Everything in my life went south. And eventually two years later, I, uh, I had an awakening and I just realized that, you know, I have an op- there's an opportunity. You know, it's like I, I live in the greatest city in the world. Worse has happened to better. And I just need to, you know, refocus, realign, pull myself up. And, uh, you know, I would, you know, I went to, the, you know, I'd go to the top of the Twin Towers and I would just kind of look out over the city. And at the, the beauty of that, you'd, you could look out over the city and it was like, that's all it is. Mm. You know, it's just, it's just everything looks so tiny when you're up that high. And it's like, that's all it is. It's just people looking to do something. And so, you know, then you, I got back down into the, into the day and I was like, okay, what do I need to do? And I needed to hit the pavement again with a lot more humility. You know, I'd worked in a, a coffee shop and one of the editors from Vogue had come in and, and I'd physically transformed as well. She a couple of years later, she came in and she she went, she went, is your name Stephen? And I went, yes. And she said, are you a makeup artist? 
And I went, nope. <laughs> she said, she said, oh, what do you, what do you do here? And I went, student, <laughs> because I was humiliated because I was in yeah. a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. And um, she went, wow. She said, you are a doppelganger for somebody that I've worked with. because i was humiliated yeah and you know that line between humiliation and humility uh, some people like me had to go the humiliation route to find the humility yeah you know and that was my route you know so and and it took me a 10-year climb to get back to vogue 10 years Uh uh-huh wow and Garen had already told me when I first met him, he said, it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. So I was like, okay. <laughs> so. Even after 14 years, I'm always looking for ways to improve the show. Part of that has been slowly improving the equipment we use to record and edit the podcast. But one thing that I've never really been able to control is what a guest uses when I'm interviewing them over the computer. As a result, the sound quality on their end can be good enough or it can be great. It's always unpredictable. One of the things I've wanted to do was something that I learned from working on an NPR show, which is called a tape sync. That involves hiring someone to go to the guest location and record the audio for me using their own mic and recording device while I converse with the guest over the computer. It's simple. It doesn't require my guest to be tech savvy at all, and I get great sound. The challenge is it costs about $100 to $125 a pop. And even though I don't have to do it for every episode, it can still add up pretty quickly. But it could be very doable if we could increase the number of people who support the show from only 3% to 5%. I could even compensate our editor, Martin Taylor, more generously for all the hours of voluntary work he's put into the show. Become part of the 5% today by contributing as little as $5 a month to our Patreon effort. It's a small amount that will make a big difference. So visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame and become a Patreon supporter today. Thanks. So what do you, do you feel like, can you point to a particular shooter job that was sort of the turning point where you felt like, okay, I can do this again? There were three jobs. The first job was a friend of mine, Marla, who I'd met. She worked at the Mac Pro Store. That's Mac Cosmetics. That's not Mac's, Mac the computer. We had a similar aesthetic. I assisted a, one of her makeup idols who had died. He did a lot of David Bowie stuff in the 70s mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of iconic images. And I got to assist him when he moved back to Australia. And so her and I connected on that. So 10 years later... She disappeared from Mac and I don't know where she ended. I didn't know where she was. And I got a phone call out of the blue and she said, would you like to come and do looks for Dior Couture in Paris? And I'm like, yeah, I do. That was with Pat McGrath, the most iconic makeup artist to date. She said, great, there's a ticket at the airport. I'll see you tomorrow morning in Paris. (laughs) I was like, what? Fuck. So I get everything together and I got to the airport and did the red eye to Paris and, you know, saw Marla that day. And then we had that day off. And then the next day we're up at like, you know, five in the morning, four or five in the morning. And we went to the Atelier of Dior, the Atelier of Dior. And it was uh, when John Galliano was there who, is one of the most astonishing designers I've ever seen. And for three days, we created looks, which is basically we all had a model each. Pat was looking for a new first assistant. It was between me and this guy, Michael. And so we basically, there were Kathy Ann, Lloyd Simmons, me and Marla and Michael all doing looks. And basically doing looks means you do makeup after makeup after makeup for three days. Wow. Then you take it into John... And that's amazing in itself because you walk in and there is like all the biggest models in the world are standing on pedestals while they're getting these dressed because haute couture is handmade. So everything has to be handmade. Mm -hmm. So they're doing this beading work, this intricate beading work on this origami dresses that it was a was uh, Madame Butterfly was one of the themes. So they're doing all this hand beading, like all these old women doing hand beading and stuff. And so it was like, 
it was astonishing, you know, um, just to be around that and be part of that and to be with the most iconic fashion house in the world, you know. I mean, there's Chanel, there's, you know, there's definitely other iconic yeah. fashion houses, but for me, Dior was always the iconic one. On day four, after doing that for three days for, you know, 12, 14 hours a day, you're up at four in the morning and we're up until like, I think one in the morning cutting out eyebrows for, for, you know, the different sections and blah, blah, blah. And then showing up for the show and, you know, the biggest models in the world are there. And you, I'm part of this experience. So, you know, we get to do the makeup. We, I did two models. It took like three hours a model. Then the show starts and then... I just collapse into a heap on the ground and I'm just sobbing. And that's the day I met my friend Dina, who now lives out here as well. And she came up and she'd been doing it for five years and she said, are you all right? And I'm just sobbing and I said, there's some little kid in Indiana just going, one day I'm going to work for Dior, one day. (laughs) And I'm him today. I am him today. I am here living a dream, a fantasy. Stephen Dimmick from Ipswich, Australia, is here living this fantasy. And she just collapsed on the floor next to me and she said, I forgot. I forgot what we're doing. Wow. Yeah. Then I get called to go to the next show, which is Valentino Couture. So I'm in the back of a windowless van with cases of makeup through the streets of bumpy Paris, <laughs> not knowing where I'm going. And then I get out at, uh, I don't even remember where this collection was. And there was a few people milling around and it was, I look like a $2 whore. I mean, like I, I do, I, do I, look, I look like I come from you know, Santa Monica Boulevard. I'm in flip flops and cut off denim shorts and a tank top and a baseball cap. And Mr. Valentino walks in, all orange hair, orange skin, beautiful suit. And he comes up, he just looks me up and down like I am a cheap whore. And he just turns and walks away. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to get sent home. Oh, shit. And he comes back 10 minutes later and he says, "Uh," he says, are you Stephen? And I said, yes. And he said, it's an honor to have you working on my collection today. And I was just like, uh... Thank you, Mr. Valentino. <laughs> it's an honour for me to be here. And he and I connected really well. And I would always go out. Uh, if, there'd be times where he and I'd be back. Well, everyone's backstage, and it, the collection was over. And I, he would be. Um, he liked some photographers, some paparazzi, and not some others. So yeah. he would say, "Stephen is so and so out there," and I'd come back. Yes, Mr. Valentino. Blah blah's on the right, and blah blah's on the left. And he'd get, "Thank you, Stephen." So it was just a great little connection that we had. Wow. So, well, you got to meet, you know, work with some amazing designers and mm-hmm. photographers. Mm-hmm. But from your experience, and you don't have to be specific about who, but I really would like to hear in terms of what were some of the things that the better photographers did that made not only your job, but everybody's job such that they brought their best? <sighs> For me, there was one one photographer really stands out to me, and his name was Chad Pittman. Uh, his inspiration was people like Lillian Bassman, and Lillian Bassman was all about shapes in her work. So mm. there was oftentimes you couldn't you could see, her imagery almost looked like charcoal sketches, but they were photographs. Yeah. And he was very influenced by her, and I, I did many stories with him and his his photography was all about shapes you know it wasn't about a model it wasn't about a garment it was about shapes you know and so it was it was great to be able to play with makeup understanding that I could really be bold and I could really be um graphic and it would come out really elegant and beautiful and uh, I did a uh, once a year for Time magazine, they choose a photographer and a makeup and a hairstylist da, 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 for the uh, st- style and design issue. So in 2000, back in 2009, Chad was chosen and he chose us, his his team. People, st- I, I, I just had one person the other day, you know, see that I did that and she was like, oh, I have had this in my inspiration folder since 2009, oh, you, wow. you know, and it's nice. like, and it's, for me, it's, 
it's one of the most iconic things I've ever done. And that's really because of the photographer. Mm. He was his own voice. He thought in an art sense more than a fashion sense. And he never compromised. That is everything to me, you know, and therefore I didn't have to compromise in my voice as an artist. When I was teaching at Art Center, a lot of the students there had an interest in fashion. Mm-hmm. And I think a big reason why they were interested in it is because I think they believed that it would provide them the greatest outlet for creativity mm. in terms of coming up with ideas and concepts. And I always, but they would never really talk about being passionate about fashion or, or design. It was more what they could do with their photography. What's your thought on someone who's interested in in fashion? Do you feel like, do they have to have a a sense and understanding of of fashion? Or as with this photographer, can they bring an aesthetic sensibility to making photographs that just fits with what, you know, fashion needs and, and wants? Good question. You know, when I think of, and I will go back to Chad, when I think of him even though he was very strong in his voice and very right in his voice, it was so fashion appropriate. He never lost touch with what he was photographing. Mm. You know, he never lost touch with the fact that, you know, there were all of these elements that went on with it. There was a set, there was a hairdresser, there was a makeup artist, there was a fashion editor all coming together. We were all coming together because he had a very clear vision, you know, but if you don't have a clear vision you can't come together with somebody who has a clear vision. So it's while it's great to have a clear vision, it's you've also got to be able to understand other people's vision in order to bring it in and make it cohesive and beautiful. So I think not just photographers, but I think as a makeup artist, as a fashion editor, fashion editors love fashion. I love makeup. Photographers love photography. So you find your voice and then those voices, those unique voices start to find voices where they fit in together like a puzzle. Mm. And I think that's how it has to happen. So I think not having a full understanding of fashion or or clothing and hair and makeup, I think that's great. Yeah. But just keep your, while you have that tunnel vision for your art, keep your eyes open to what is going to marry yeah. with that. Yeah, because you have so many people there, the stylist, the, the, the person who's doing the hair, the person who's doing the makeup, the photographer, the sets. And everyone is really kind of focused on what they're doing. And they have their own agenda in terms yeah. of making themselves sort of look good and come off good and have something that will provide them another opportunity. And I think if you, if you don't have someone who's coalescing everything, mm-hmm. every, it's just a mishmash of very talented people who don't know which direction to walk in and it can be a hot mess that is one of the reasons why it's really hard to break into an industry where only one percent succeed because if you don't have all those those aspects to be able to appreciate everything that goes around which i'm the center Mm. of my makeup universe (laughs) you know so everything around me has to be cohesive it's the same with the photographer it's the same with the stylist. It's like, so, you know, while every, I feel like everything evolves around the makeup, it has to for me. So I'm, I'm doing the right job for everything that's around me. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make me the most important person on the crew. It makes me one piece of the puzzle. But without that piece of the puzzle, it's not going to be a cohesive finished product. Yeah. And everybody must be cohesive in that. You know, some photographers have really strong personalities. They might bring in weaker people, uh, weaker personality people that are just as creative. You know, so there's all these personality things that go on. It's not just the okay. creative stuff. It's all of a whole bunch of stuff that has to come together and marry. Yeah, and one of the things that's always fascinated me, I've had, I've been around people who do fashion, and I've just been like been on the set just as an observer, and it is quite the circus. And uh, and one of the things that always sort of fascinated me is you have so many people there who are trying to do their best, but there's personalities, there's agendas, there's just a whole bunch of stuff. And as the photographer, Mm. basically, you know, you're there having sort of hold that together. And for me, I, I, I was never sure how I could handle that. But from your experience, say 
I was a photographer mm-hmm. and I had all these different people and I might have a personality issue, mm-hmm. you know, from your perspective, what would be your recommendations, your, your, your advice to that photographer to be able to sort of keep his, his, uh, his hands on the wheel? So to speak? I think sometimes it's just going to get hated. Sometimes any given artist is going to have a strong opinion. I just can't see it working any other way. I don't care who the artist, which who in that, from right. the photographer down to the stylist to the maker. I don't, you know, and I think that there's validity into sometimes fighting for what you believe in in the project. You know, pick your battles. I think. Mm. Pick your battles. It's like I don't say to a photographer, you know, I might say to a photographer 5 or 10% of the time, can we just shoot it? I want to see it because I believe in this, Mm. you know. And if it's wrong, I will absolutely wash it off. But sometimes it's like, this is amazing. So they're discussing it without having made the photograph and they're making a judgment call. Is that Mm -hmm. what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yes. And, you know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, it's, I, th- I think it can, it has to be done. I mean, there's, there's also been some times where I've done a makeup or the hair has been done and I've had to change the makeup because the hair was, um, they, they combated each other. Sometimes the hair mm. changes because the makeup combated it. Uh, sometimes the fashion will never change because, you know, you need to shoot this story. Right. So, you know, I think everyone has to come together. I've been also been on sets where a photographer will see something going on and go, oh, I'm going to change the light because he oh, likes yeah. what he's seeing, you know. So I think everyone just needs to stay really open to each other. And if somebody believes in something so strongly, take it in. Yeah. Take it in and see what they're talking about. And it can't be about ego. At that point, it has to be about in service of what everyone is trying to accomplish. In service, in service of the final product, in service of the final image, in, ser- in service of that, absolutely, you know. And I've been on both sides of the coin where I've fought for what I want, and we've shot it, and the photographer's like, got it, understood, mm. it's perfect. And I've been on the other side where the photographer's like, it's shit, <laughs> we need to change it. Yeah. And sometimes it's been shit and I've gone, yeah, that didn't work. And sometimes it's been, sh- he said shit and I've gone, it looks great, <laughs> uh-huh. you know. But, you know, if he's, if, he's, if he's that adamant and he's shot it and he's still not happy, you know, if I'm an artist, I should be able to come back to the table and create something that, you know, every, you know that's going to be cohesive with his vision too. Yeah, any of those jobs are not going to work if you're a person that takes stuff like that personally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Correct. I had one job with a, a, a high-end, um, that was Neiman Marcus. Anyway, <laughs> and um, it was a photo shoot for Neiman Marcus and the art director, I'd never worked with her before and I'd been warned about her. My agent warned me about her and my agent at the time was, she never had a bad word to say about anybody. Mm-hmm. She was she was meditating om, 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 num, 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 that kind of <laughs> yeah, person. Okay. She just said, just put on your armor for this one, Stephen. I was like, oh, crap. Mm. <laughs> she's telling me that I better put my armor on. So I did, I did one of these makeups. It was with a photographer that I'd worked with all the time. He got me in there and I did this makeup. And it was one of those makeups that I stood back from and I was like, <laughs> I nailed it. It was, that doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. You know, but this was one of those ones. I was like, wow, this is beautiful. And the, the photographer came up and he said, that's beautiful. And I went, it is, isn't it? You know, and he was saying, yeah, but <laughs> we just need to wait. The art director came in. She, I'd never met her. She didn't acknowledge me. She didn't look at me. She walked straight past me. She went up to the model and she said, this is the ugliest makeup I have ever, ever seen. I almost burst out laughing because I was like, Mm, no, it's really not. <laughs> and, and, and I said, oh, okay, what would you, where would you like me to go with it? Would you like me to pull back here or maybe add something here? And she said, I don't know, just fix it. So no input, no nothing. She walked away, turned away from me, still hadn't looked me in the eye and walked away. Wow. And I said to the photographer, I said, so um, 
what do you think I should do? And he said, just pick up a brush and pretend to do something. Mm. So I picked up a brush and just went into the model's face and just was tapping her face. And, you know, I was going, fucking bitch. You know, what a, oh, my God, what, a, what an unhappy guy. Glad I didn't wake up in her ugly skin this morning. Like, I was, I was pissed. Yeah. So, you know, I was, and, you know, when you work with the model, when you touch them, everything changes. It's an intimate connection. So, we, you know, we had a giggle about it. Mm. And so I, so I didn't change anything. I did that for like 10 minutes and I came over and I said, uh, I, I, you know, I've softened some stuff down. I've built some stuff up. I'd love you to come and have a look. And she came over and she went, that is much better. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's only ever happened once though, where yeah. I didn't actually change something. But, so. but, but it tells you that. How about somehow some of the stuff has just nothing to do with you or your, or your work. Correct. It's just whatever the person that issue that person has. And Correct. if you're able to negotiate around that, yeah. you're able to do so much. Yeah. And that came because I had a connection with the photographer. Yeah. You know, we had a connection and a, and, a, and a history together, you know, so he knew how to navigate it. You know, he just, she just needed to, you know, shake her balls around to say, I'm in charge here. And you need to know it. Yeah. That's all that was, you know. So you had a cover of Italian Vogue. Yes. Which several, uh, several. <laughs> okay, thank. Excuse me. So, so well, since you've done several, was the first the best? Yeah. Um, no. Okay. The first was that one that I had that breakdown about, yeah. and I did the most kick-ass Dimmick signature eye makeup. And um, there were sunglasses in every single picture. <laughs> <sighs> and I called my agent at the end of the day and I was just like, and this was that photographer who got me room with the client. I'd, I'd worked with him for, a, a, this is my third job with him. And I called my agent. I was, I was like, there were sunglasses on every, like emotional again. Mm. There were sunglasses on every shot. And she said, did you do an amazing lip? And I went, yeah. And she went, well, you're the only person I know who was shooting Italian Vogue today who did an amazing lip. I was like, thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And again, it came back to the collaborative process. You know, it turned out that the sunglasses were working and everything. So you keep the sunglasses. It's, it's, again, I'm not the star of the show. Mm -hmm. I'm a cog in the, in the machine. So... I'd seen it. The guy I heard this guy who did the uh, simply irresistible music video with the girls mm -hmm. with the, or the red eyes, the black eyes, and the okay. red lips and stuff. And he worked with one photographer who just loved the girls to be made up like that all the time. And he said we went away to an island and we were doing this job, and I had three girls to do, and he wanted them fully made up, so they were fully made up with black smoky eyes and red lips and blush and da da da. And he said every shot was from behind. <gasps> and he said, but. The photographer just loved it. He just loved that the girls were, you know, the girls were made up. He said he loved that makeup on the girls. He, he, he thought it was always sexy and, and he said, and the girls felt it. The girls felt oh. that, you know. He said, and he said, I still got paid the same amount whether you saw my work or not, you know. And he said it was, it was the collaboration, yeah. you know. So that's what it all comes down to. Man, this has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Mm, thank you. So uh, have I. Well, my last question that I usually ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to <gasps> discover and explore. Ooh. But I'd, I'd like to take a little different thing, and I'd like you to recommend another makeup artist. <sighs> and if you have a photographer, you can add that as well. Oh, gosh. <sighs> Why didn't you warn me? <laughs> <laughs> I never warned anyone about this question. Um... There's a great fashion duo called um, Juco, J-U-C-O, and they're, uh, you know, I, I just, their work is kind of bold and sassy and um, it's not something that I'm generally into, but I like what they do. Um, and a makeup artist to talk to would be, oh, that's a hard one. I'll say Dina Gregg and Lottie. Again, is it? Dina Gregg. Dina Gregg. And Lottie. And Lottie, okay. And they're both in LA. And what do you like about their work? I love Dina's work because there's this raw edge to it that I don't have. She's the one who came up to me at the Dior show 
That's when we met. Oh, okay. She's just got a beautiful raw edge to her work that I, I love. Lottie is... She's incredible with colour. She's incredible. She, glitter, colour, gloss, shine, uh, j- just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful work. You know, uh, Satya Linick is another incredible artist that would be amazing. There's a new young artist that I really love, um, Alyssa Yasuda, who is, she's Japanese and she's thoroughly entrenched in her Japanese culture and she does calligraphy and, and uh, all of the, she's just an incredible thinking artist mm. she thinks about art she thinks about makeup she thinks about history and culture and and uh, she actually did a makeup on me a uh, kabuki inspired makeup on me that was just and she told me the whole story about it and, and what it Ooh. meant and the colors and i was just like what <laughs> well great recommendations just <laughs> thank you i can't think of a better way to start the year thank you so much i appreciate being here Thanks to Stephen for coming by the studio. Find out more about him and his work by visiting stephendimmick.com. And if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have led people to take a chance on us and allowed us to grow. Be like Timber from the USA, who described me as the Terry Gross of photography podcasts. Thanks a lot for that. I really appreciate it. Along with my recent book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, I just released my latest ebook, Nine Pictures, Nine Stories, Volume 2. The first one got a great response, and I'm back with a follow-up where I discuss the stories behind nine images that I created last year. It's just $8, and your purchase is just another way you can support the show. Purchase that and any of my previous ebooks by visiting the website thecandorframe.com. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including special events, workshops, and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. Thanks to Jim Kelly, Phil Holland, J.W. Hulton, Naja Kirkadal Jensen, and Daniel Jones for their recent contributions. And if you found that you can't access every episode of The Candid Frame, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer, Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.